Thank you, Justin. Good morning. Welcome. Glad that you're here with us today. How was your Christmas? Did you have a good Christmas? Raise your hand if you got something that really surprised you. You got a real surprise gift this year. Anybody get something that really threw them off? Maybe a puppy when you weren't expecting one. How many of you got exactly what you expected? How many of you took what you got and took it back to get exactly what you... No, don't raise your hand. We're really glad that you're here today. It is that interesting time of year between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, on TV, all the review shows are out, like the, you know, the 10 worst of this, the top 100 of that, the year in review, because this is the time of the year where we think about the year past, 2018, and we think about the year ahead. It may be that you're one of those people that does New Year's resolutions, or maybe you just do a lot of objectives and goals for the year. Maybe you're one who's a little more informal about that. I don't know. But either way, it's healthy to think about these things. Some of us may look back on 2018, and it may be a little bit difficult for us. There may be some difficulty, some struggle in it. Or it may have been a great year. Likewise, when we're thinking about the year ahead, we may be really excited about it or a little anxious about it. Well, to help us process that a little bit, in your handout, you may have got when you came in, I have a little matrix in there that looks a little bit like this, kind of two by two. It's kind of business-like, I apologize, but it's just a tool to help us think a little bit about how we are feeling about the year we've just concluded and the year we have ahead. So the idea here is, here's the past, this is the year behind us, this, this is the future on this axis, bad, good, bad, good. The idea here being that if you look back on this last year, and it was kind of a tough year for you, then you're kind of down here in this, in this bad category. Maybe you lost a job. Maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe there was an important relationship to you that went sideways. It was a tough year. It was a disappointing year. Maybe as you look ahead, you don't see a lot of things changing. So the coming year looks kind of bad for you, too. You'd put yourself kind of in this quadrant down here. Maybe it was a tough year, but you see things changing. You're looking forward to this year because some things are going to happen. So you're over in this quadrant here. Last year was bad, but the coming year looks pretty good. On the flip side, may have been a great 2018 for you. Maybe you got married, maybe you graduated, maybe you welcomed a new grandchild into your family. It was a great year. But maybe you're not so sure about the year ahead, so you kind of put yourself in this quadrant here. If 2018 was great, 2019 looks great, you're out here in this quadrant. So here's what you can do. You can take a moment today or in the days ahead. You just kind of put yourself somewhere in that quadrant and maybe pick a word that goes along with it. And then share with someone you who cares about you, where you're at. As I thought about this, I kind of put myself a little bit in the, in the middle there. Uh, 2018 was, wasn't a bad year. There was no crises, no great loss, just a few disappointments, a few things that didn't quite turn out as they, I wanted them to, which is often the way life is, right? And right now, I'm not sure how many of those things are going to turn around in, in 2019. So I'm a little bit stuck here in the middle. Well, here's some suggestions. Here's some principles that apply to me, as well as I will suggest to all of you. And that is this. If we want a fulfilling life, if we want a fulfilling 2019, or even beyond that, a life in general, there's a couple of principles we can apply, apply in our plans. And they are these. 
We need a big enough purpose, and we need a long enough time horizon. We need a big enough purpose, and we need a long enough time horizon. Let me get a little more specific about that. What I mean by a big enough purpose, we need a purpose that's bigger than ourselves, that's not just about us. Now, there's nothing wrong with setting your New Year's resolutions that you want to be healthier in the new year, you want to be more successful, you want to be happier. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. Being happy is good. It's just that being happy is not a big enough purpose for a life. It's not a big enough ambition to have a fulfilling life. We need a purpose that's bigger than ourselves. Likewise, we need a long enough time horizon. Now, we already know that you know, when we're thinking about next year's goals, a lot of times they fit into goals that fit further down the road. You may be planning or setting your goal to graduate in 2019, not just for the sake of graduating, but because you have plans further down the line. You have longer-term goals that affect your shorter-term goals. What I would suggest to you is actually we need a timeline, a time horizon even longer than that. The Bible tells us that to have a really meaningful and purposeful life, we need a time horizon that extends beyond this life to eternity. So I don't know if you buy into these, I don't know if you agree with them, but interestingly enough, the text that we're going to talk about today, which seemingly has nothing to do with Christmas, nothing to do with New Year's, it has far more to do with Easter than any of those, but the text we're going to talk about today enlightens these, illuminates these principles. And uh, we'll see if I convince you to agree with them by the end. And by the way, if you buy these two... There's actually a third that comes along with it. But we'll save that for later. Don't let me forget. The passage we're going to talk about today is Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 14. Uh, if you hear, were here with us before Christmas, this is where we left off back in Mark. Jesus is heading up for Jerusalem. In today's passage, we've got three scenes that are going on. Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He enters Jerusalem like he never has before in a very public way, a very intentional and purposeful way. The second scene is just one verse. He's in the temple, and basically nothing happens. The third scene is even more bizarre. He has a conversation with a fig tree. But we're going to take a look. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can find one like this in the pew in front of you. It's just like this. If you turn about two-thirds of the way through, you'll find page 36, the second page 36. That'll put you right at Mark chapter 11. I'm going to read it. You can follow along with me. This is what happens. As they, this is Jesus and all of his followers, his entourage, as they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, Why are you doing, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. 
Many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Verse 12. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Hmm. Curious. Let's go a little bit deeper. Here's where we started in Mark chapter 11. They approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany. These are kind of suburbs on the outskirts, right on the edge of Jerusalem. This is where they're going to end up staying. Near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you bringing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately will bring it back. Now, this is a little bit weird, maybe, but it's even more significant if you recognize the fact that Jesus has been to Jerusalem on a number of occasions, and most of the time that he enters Jerusalem... It's, a, it's almost undercover. He doesn't let anybody know he's coming. In this case, he's making a very intentional, very staged public appearance so that people might see him. He's got things planned out in advance, and he's got people involved with helping him. So it's helpful for us to go back a little bit, get a little more context. If you've still got your Bible open to where it was before, you go one column over, back to Mark chapter 10, because this is the lead-in to this visit to Jerusalem where Jesus says exactly what's going to happen and exactly why he's going there. Mark 10, verse 32. They, again, this is Jesus and all those who were following him, were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. It's this gray setting that that we covered uh, several weeks back, but it's this idea as Mark paints the picture that Jesus is very intentional He's got a purpose in mind. He's ahead of the pack. Everybody else is following behind as he heads for Jerusalem. And some of the folks are amazed, meaning they can't believe this is happening, or possibly they don't know what is happening. But something unique, something strange, something radical is happening. Maybe those who have a little bit more insight are fearful. They're afraid. They're anxious about what's ahead. Possibly because this is what Jesus had told them would happen. He goes on to say, this is why I'm going there. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him, scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. This is possibly the reason why some of these people amazed, going, what does all this mean? We know a number of times Jesus said he would rise again and the disciples would go off in the corner and debate, what does he mean by rising again? Because Jesus often spoke in metaphors. They thought maybe he's 
He doesn't really mean rising again. What is rising again anyway? But Jesus is very intentional. He has a plan. He knows what's going to happen. So let's pick up the story again back in chapter 11 with verse 4. The disciples went away and they found the colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them as Jesus had told them and they gave them permission. So this is an odd scenario. I mean, if somebody shows up, especially if they're wearing robes and long beards, and they want to borrow your car and you've never seen them before, the common response is not, well, sure. But they let Jesus take this donkey, this colt. So here's some thoughts, some questions we might have. Is this just a cultural practice? Is this normal? Is this, maybe it's prearranged. Jesus arranged this in advance. Or is this something supernatural? Is this a miracle that's actually transpiring here? That they would let them take the donkey? Well, here's some reasons why it might be cultural practice. What's going on here is a a big feast, the Feast of Passover. And that's why Jesus is coming in. There's all these other people there. And at this time, those people that lived in this area of Jerusalem, they were obligated culturally to show as much hospitality as possible to visitors to the festival. They would welcome them as much as they possibly should. I apologize to you, to all the visitors here today, that we didn't offer you a donkey and put our cloaks on it and usher you in with branches. You probably just would have thought we were weird anyway. But there it was significant. There it was welcoming. There it was honoring. So they may have just let it go because it was their their practice. When the disciples said, the Lord needs it, they may have recognized that he was talking about Jesus or maybe just somebody of some importance and they thought, well, by all means, we should let him have it, especially if he's going to bring it back. Or it could be that Jesus prearranged it. You note in the text, Jesus said that it's a donkey, it's a colt on which no one has ever ridden. So Mark doesn't tell us, he doesn't tell us everything that goes on. Maybe Jesus behind the scenes had made these arrangements in advance. Or perhaps it was miraculous. Perhaps God told Jesus, this is what's going to happen And he arranged it, and Jesus was relying on God to execute his plan. Whatever happened, whatever was the uh, circumstances under which that occurred, it sets the stage for the entrance. Having obtained the colt, they now deliver it to Jesus, and in verse 7 we pick up, they brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The people that are watching him, they are quoting from us or reciting from a Psalm 118. And this was uh, an appropriate psalm to quote at this time of year. But the questions we're wondering is, what is going on here? What is Jesus trying to do? And what is, how is the crowd picturing what he's doing? Well, if you picture this scene in your mind, the first thing that might, it might remind you of in our modern day situation is a parade. I mean, it's a little bit like a parade with Jesus walking in and being ushered into people on the side. So I thought it would be the perfect time to play a game called Name That Parade. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put pictures up on the screen, and you have to figure out what parade it is. You can play individually, you can play as a team, and you can keep score any way you want because there are absolutely no prizes. (laughs) All right, here we go. Anybody recognize that one? I'm hearing the Rose Parade. 
You're right. That's a local one. That was pretty easy. How about this one? The guy in the middle, a little bit of giveaway, Kermit the Frog floating along there. Yes, that's the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. Okay, this one may be a little bit trickier. Okay, I'd focus on the green. St. Patrick's Day Parade, that's correct. Okay, here's for the younger set. That's right. Who's this? It's Mickey and Minnie. It's Disneyland. We would accept Disney World Christmas Parade. Here's one more. Okay, this one may be a little bit harder. I'd focus on the building at the back, if that looks familiar. This is the inaugural parade. Here's one closer to home. Is that anybody's boat that's out here? I want to be on that boat next year. That's right, it's the Newport Beach Christmas Boat Parade. Well, not like any of those, this is what we think perhaps Jesus' entry into Jerusalem may have looked like, but there just aren't a lot of photos uh, of this anymore. Jesus is entering Jerusalem, and we can see the people. They're laying down branches. They're laying down their cloaks. It almost seems like they're creating obstacles, but what they're actually doing is rolling out the red carpet and welcoming him. So what is Jesus trying to do, and what do the crowds understand about what he's trying to do? Well, let's deal with the second one first. Honoring Jesus this way, the way it's described that they did, probably meant that they were honoring a triumphant king. Now, some of them just may have been, again, welcoming as part of the festival of Passover. It wouldn't be that unusual. But history tells us that about 100 years before this, there were the Maccabees. They were Jewish leaders, soldiers that kicked out the Syrians. At the time, the uh, people of Israel were under the dominion of the Syrians, and the Maccabees led a rebellion and kicked them out. And the people welcomed them into Jerusalem much as the description we have in this passage. So it's quite possible that many, if not all of them, were viewing Jesus as their triumphant king, that he was coming to kick out the Romans. And somehow, as a result of him landing on earth, God's kingdom would come, and the kingdom of Israel would rise up again, and they'd be freed from the Romans. Well, what was Jesus' intent in what he was doing? Because clearly he took very intentional steps. Well, we need some help on this, We jump over to another gospel, Matthew, in chapter 11. And Matthew tells us that what Jesus was doing was to fulfill a prophecy that occurred hundreds of years before. There's a passage in Zechariah 9.9 that reads like this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. He's talking about the people of Israel. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What Jesus is doing here is brilliant. It's kind of target marketing. Because if Jesus had shown up on the edge of Jerusalem and say, I'm here, I'm your king, the first thing that would have happened would have been the Romans would have arrested him, and that would be the end. But what he does is he does something much more subtle than that, much more brilliant than that. He acts out a drama. He speaks with his actions and wants these people that would be familiar with this prophecy, the people of Israel, the Jews, to recognize that he is making this claim. But he's making a claim of a king who's not just triumphant, but humble and riding on a donkey. He's not come, we'll find out, to kick out the Romans. 
He's got something more important to accomplish ahead of time. Someday he will return as their triumphant king and rule the whole world, but not this week, not this time. Mark gets Jesus in in this dramatic, triumphant parade. He lands in the city of Jerusalem, and then boom, immediately switches scenes in verse 11 of Mark. There is this one-verse scene that reads like this. Jesus entered Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Now, Mark is amazingly succinct with his gospel. His favorite word is immediately, because he's always moving on to the next thing. We believe that from history that Mark was the protege of Peter. He's writing down the eyewitness accounts that Peter had. So maybe it was Mark, or maybe it was Peter, but everything is moving real fast. Why did he bother to stop and give us this event where nothing actually happens? Well, those of you who know the story, those of you who've read ahead, or possibly downloaded the entire season from Netflix, you know that Jesus is going to cleanse the temple. He's going to kick out all the money changers. And it's likely that this is what he had intended to do at this point. But, the scripture says, it was late could have been late, meaning many of them had already packed up and gone home. It could have been meaning it was late in that there just weren't a lot of people to see what he wanted them to see, and he wanted to do this very publicly. But it's late. Jesus had a plan, and in contrast to what happened with the donkey, where everything was set out and happened just the way he had planned it, it appears in this case that it isn't exactly as he would have expected. He doesn't get up. He doesn't get upset. He doesn't throw a tantrum like I might. Instead, he adjusts, and he heads out to Bethany. Now, it's actually not unusual for us to see Jesus recognizing, or at least not trying to manipulate, circumstances. He actually tells us that there are things beyond his control. I talked about the lead-in in Mark 10 to this visit to Jerusalem, where Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. And Right on the eve of Jesus, right after Jesus tells them that he's going to be tortured and he's going to be crucified, two of his followers, James and John, think, this is the perfect time to ask for a promotion. Aha! Jesus, when you get into your new kingdom, make us your right and left-hand man. Make us your top two advisors. Real socially awkward situation. These guys are hopefully oblivious to what Jesus is saying rather than completely indifferent. But Jesus takes it in stride and says, well, Okay, that's what you want. Are you willing to do what it takes to get those positions? And they said, no problem. We're your guys. Whatever it takes, we're there, Jesus. Just tell us we're number one, we're number two, we're your, we're your guys. Again, Jesus sort of takes them at their word but responds with this interesting statement. He says, okay, if you can handle it, do it by all means. But... To sit at my right or my left, this is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus is being clear about the fact that there are things beyond his control, things that he doesn't get to decide. Yet, he appears to be at peace with that. He appears to be content with that. And likewise, in the situation of the temple, he comes there, presumably to kick everybody out. It's not the right time. So he rolls it with it. He heads off to Bethany. Final scene. And this is the really weird one. This is where he talks to the fig tree. Mark 11, verse 12. On the next day, so they, 
they come into Jerusalem and, and spend there in the daytime. Each night they go out to Bethany. Apparently had an Airbnb out there. So when they had left Bethany, they're coming back into town. But he became hungry. He is Jesus. He became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. What in the world is going on here? So this is what Jesus was looking for. This is what figs look like before we make them into Newtons, in case you're not familiar with them. Jesus was hungry, so he came up to the tree, and he wanted to find some. There were none there, so he curses it. What in the world is happening? It, it seems like Jesus is just being petulant. Matter of fact, this, this scene is so troubling to some scholars that they're convinced it never actually happened. They think Mark messed up. This must have been just a parable or an allegory, and somehow he translated it from Peter as actually happening. This couldn't have happened because Jesus would never behave like this. Well, what is Jesus trying to do? What does this interaction with the fig tree mean? The answer is, I don't know. (laughs) But... Good news, next week, Pastor Dave is back, and he'll give the second half of this, and I'm sure he's going to explain it completely. (laughs) See, Dave, you get to introduce me, I get to introduce you, it all works out. (sighs) You know, the last time I had a craving late at night, I didn't open up the refrigerator and said, Susie, are we out of figs? Do we have any more figs left? It's just not a snack that I'm into. To me, it'd be much more, I'd I'd be looking for chips and salsa or maybe some chocolate. Do you see your favorite candy in the image there? So you approach the vending machine. You need something sweet. You get your money out. You get it in there or you borrow money. Somebody else who carries change, whoever those people are. You put your money in. You press the button. Those cool little corkscrew things start to turn And right as it gets to the edge, it stops. And it's stuck there. Your M&Ms, your Butterfinger, whatever, it's just stuck there. So you look around, you give it a hit, maybe a shove. Maybe you get really serious and you start to rock it back and forth. It's not budging. It's not going anywhere. It's stuck there. Wouldn't it be cool if you could curse the vending machine and turn it into a pile of plastic and metal goo? But if you could do that... Why not just make the candy come out? If Jesus encounters a fig tree and he's hungry and doesn't have figs, why doesn't he just make figs? Jesus is in control of his emotions. He's in control of his desires and his appetites. But he doesn't necessarily control all things. He recognizes that there are things beyond his direct control, and he chooses at least to not exercise that control. He chooses to trust that his Heavenly Father will take care of him, even when things go a little bit sideways. Okay, let me see if I can land this plane here for you, but before I do, I need to go back just a little bit bigger. I've already given you a little bit of background on why Jesus came to Jerusalem this trip, but let me back us up just a little bit more and give us the whole picture of the Bible. The Bible teaches us that God created us to have a unique and intimate relationship with him. 
That's exactly what we were created for. That's the way things started out at the beginning. But we decided that we really like our independence and our, our autonomy, and we rebelled against him. And as a result of that rebellion, we corrupted the whole earth in which we now live. For Christianity, everything that's wrong with the world is not because God is indifferent or God is not present. It's because of what we have done. But God has a fix for us, the Bible teaches us. He will create a new heaven and a new earth that are perfect again, but that then creates another dilemma because we are not perfect, and if he put us in it, it would become imperfect again. Now, hopefully I'm not offending any of you when I say you're not perfect. I mean, I'm willing to grant that you are significantly better than that person sitting next to you, but none of us is perfect. But God has a solution for that too. He sent his son in a most miraculous and maybe even scandalous plan to die for us, to rescue us, so that he might restore that relationship for which we were created. God desires to have that relationship with us and was willing to pay that very big price. Jesus' life on earth illustrates the principles that we talked about before, that we need a big enough purpose and we need a long enough time frame. If Jesus' purpose on earth was just about himself, it would not have ended in a horrible death. It was about bigger than himself. It was about you and me and how much he loved us. If his life was just about the 33 years that he spent on earth, boy, at best it would be a tragedy. At worst, it would be pointless. But his birth that we celebrated, the life that he lived and the death that he died was so that after that, he would rise again and be the one that could restore that relationship we have that we want and need with God. Okay, I said that I would um, connect it back to this first point. Here's the thing. I know, speaking personally, that I need to have a fulfilling life. I need to have a purpose bigger than myself. And I not only want it to be bigger than myself, I want it to be really big. I want it to be cool. I want it to be exciting to tell stories about. I want it to be amazing. But I also want to be able to manage it. You know, I want to be control certain things along the way. I mean, I want it to be a really amazing plan for my life, but I want veto power if things are not going the way I want them to. You see the problem? The purpose can't be bigger than me if I can control it. If I can control it, I must be bigger than it. So, by definition, a purpose that is bigger than me must be beyond my control. A purpose that is bigger than you for your life must be beyond your control. But, but that means we just have to give up and give everything over to chaos. Who would make that exchange? Well, Jesus gives us another option. He says that there is a heavenly Father that you can trust. We need a big enough purpose bigger than ourselves. We need a long enough timeline. I suggest to you that we need to be thinking about not only this life, but beyond this life. But if we're going to do that, that requires entrusting my plans to someone bigger than me. We're going to close. I'm going to ask the uh, uh, worship team to come on up and give you a chance to respond. We have communion tables uh, set around stations at different places. We connect with God in communion, and we publicly acknowledge that we are dependent upon him, that we need him. 
So feel free to uh, avail yourselves of that as we sing. Additionally, you may be stuck back on processing 2018, 2019, good, bad, still don't understand that matrix thing. Or you may be thinking about the fact that this year ahead looks kind of tough for you. Or maybe you've got some clarity and you've got some things you need to accomplish in 2019 and you're not sure how. If that's anywhere you're at or anywhere different than that, we would love to be able to pray with you, to encourage you. There'll be people at the prayer stations by the lights on both sides. Come on up while we sing and we'd be happy to pray with you.